interested in starting your own podcast? Audioboom can help with our $9.99 monthly subscription plan for hosting and distribution. You'll get 200 minutes of recording time per episode, a branded homepage on the Audioboom platform, embeddable players for web and social media, advanced analytics, and so much more. To sign up for your $9.99 monthly subscription plan, go to audioboom.com start. That's A-U-D-I-O-B-O-O-M dot com slash S-T-A-R-T. This is the MLW Radio Network. This episode of Prime Time with Sean Mooney is brought to you by SeatGeek. Now, all you have to do is download the SeatGeek app to your phone, and then you're just a few finger taps away from all those great events that you want to see. And because you listen to Prime Time, you're going to get $20 off your first purchase. So, what are you waiting for? Get to it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Prime Time with Sean Mooney. I hope you all enjoyed this past week's episode with Leaping Lanny Poffo. You know, Lanny remains as unique now as he did back when I knew him during his time with the WWE. And you have to imagine it was not easy being the brother of the Macho Man Randy Savage. But as the genius pointed out, uh, he is very proud of what he accomplished and that uh, he had some main event runs, which is not an easy thing to do in the WWE. So he was an accomplished superstar all on his own. And I want to thank Lanny for coming on. And next time, I expect to hear that Sean Mooney poem from The Genius. I want to hear that. How many people can say that, that The Genius wrote a poem for them? So next time we have him on, I hope that we're going to get that done. (laughs) Well, this is a big week for the WWE. As many of you know, this Monday, January 22nd, The live Raw 25 is taking place in New York City at the Manhattan Center and at the Barclays Center. And, uh, you know, I wonder if people realize how big an event this really is, not just because of where it stands in the world of professional wrestling, but also in the world of television. Listen, I mean, 25 years of Raw remaining on the air is an incredible accomplishment. It is now the longest-running episodic television program in the history of the medium. And that is really incredible. I I love uh, television. I love the history of television. And to me, that is is just amazing. And, um, you know, I am very proud of the fact that uh, I was the first person ever seen uh, on that show. And uh, I I wish I could be there. Uh, I will talk a little bit more about that coming up. But the lineup for this show is just amazing. Stone Cold is going to be part of it, which I'm really excited to, uh, about. And also The Undertaker, Brother Love is going to be there. Uh, so many other great superstars. Uh, it is going to be some party. As I mentioned, I was invited to be part of the fun, but unfortunately, I'm also a news anchor way out west, and I am not uh, able to get away. Uh, trust me, though, uh, I really wanted to be there. Really, It's going to be so tough to watch that live event and know that I could have been there. But I did have the chance to slip back to WWE headquarters in Connecticut and shoot some segments for the uh, special surrounding the 25 greatest moments in the 25 years of Raw. And I got to do that with Peter Rosenberg. And uh, clips from that shoot are out now all over social media. I hope you get a chance to see it because we really had a blast doing it. And I love the way it came out. They did a great job with it. I mean, think Night at the Museum uh, meets the WWE, okay? Uh, That's all I'm going to tell you. 
but uh, we had we really had fun doing it, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Um, I had a great time with Peter, and I'd love to work with him again because I think we made a great team. You know, it took me back to the days when Alfred and I had so much fun putting all of those Coliseum Home videos together. So, folks, really, check it out. It's all over the place. And, uh, you know, so indirectly, I feel I'm still a part of the celebration of Raw 25. And I can guarantee you, uh, being in one of those buildings to see Raw 25 is, is going to be a fantastic seat. And maybe you may miss that one. But there are certainly many other WWE live events coming up that you could be a part of. Or maybe, uh, you know, it's seats to see a great band or a performer that's coming to your town. You know where I'm going here? Well, I can help you out. I can help you do it, and I can help you save money, too. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app right onto your mobile device. And then you're just a few finger taps away from getting those awesome seats to that special event you've been thinking about. And listen to this. Because you're one of my listeners, once you have that app, all you have to do is plug in the promo code PRIMETIME and you're going to get $20 off your first purchase. Now let me tell you why SeatGeek is absolutely the best. One big reason is SeatGeek searches multiple ticket sites to compare and find the best prices. Also, every single purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with absolute total confidence. And the best part about it all, because you are one of my listeners, you're going to get that very special deal. Just download the SeatGeek app onto your mobile device, whatever it is, and enter the promo code PRIMETIME. That's promo code PRIMETIME, and you're going to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Do it today. Now, it appears a lot of people have seen the segments that the WWE has released on social media. My Twitter uh, is already lit up with comments from people who have seen it. And you know how much I love reading the comments. And I always love uh, those messages you send to me. Uh, it's going to be real easy, though. I'm going to make it uh, to get in touch with me. All you have to do to reach me on Twitter is use my handle, at Who. Or, of course, we also have at PrimetimeMLW. And uh, if you need more characters, you know, uh, email me. I love emails, and I read them all, and you know I get back to you at primetime at MLW.com. That's primetime at MLW.com. Folks, please continue to help us spread the word. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Put out a tweet. Really, it all helps. Tell them all they have to do is go to iTunes and subscribe. And if they do, be sure to tell them to give us a review and a rating. As you know, it's getting very crowded out there in the world of wrestling podcasts, so all of it goes a long way. All righty, let's get to the main event. A guest you've not heard much from over the years, but who was a very big part of some of your greatest memories, trust me, from the WWF, WWE. Was the guitar always your first instrument, has always been, or... Uh, piano or? let me think. Is guitar my first instrument? No, piano first. Uh, and a great tragic story with that one. I hated my piano teacher. My parents took me to piano lessons when I was, I don't know, five or something. And uh, I, I, this woman was a tyrant. I just couldn't stand her. I wasn't learning anything. You know, she, she was teaching me songs. It's like, why am I, I at five years old? I was like, why in the universe would I ever want to learn to master this song? Uh, and finally, I got my mom to let me quit because I said the lady was nuts. 
and my mom was all mad at me and very disappointed. And then two weeks later, we read she had uh, burned her house down and uh, hung herself in the tree in the backyard overlooking the fire. And it was and your fault. I know. <laughs> You've lived how, with that to this day. That is how bad a student I was. <laughs> wow. Like, um, wow, Jim. <laughs> she said, God, I give. <laughs> I can't take, take it anymore. Take the house, the piano, and <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> okay, that's a great way to start this interview. Yeah, I wanted to bring it in on an up note. <laughs> well, uh, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, uh, the uh, person that just told that incredible story is none other than Jim Johnston. I had this great intro for him, but I think we're going to start there. Uh, if you have been a fan of the WW, uh, WWF, I can still say it, WWE. I'm going to start that again. If you have been a fan of the WWF, WWE since the mid-80s, then part of what you have enjoyed over the years has not only been what you have seen in the ring and in the arenas, part of that enjoyment is what you have also heard. And joining me today is the man that is vastly responsible for all of that. I mean, think of all the great theme songs, think of all the great albums, think about the soundtracks. It all came from the mind of Jim Johnston, composer, songwriter, musician, uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on Primetime. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to great, great. It's been a long time since we've chatted. It and, has. Yeah, but we've got a, a lot to talk about. Um, you know, uh, I have to. I was trying to. You know, I'm going through trying to just count how many themes you've done over the years. Did you ever keep track? Do you know? No. Uh, someone once told me that the the catalog registration at BMI, which is the Performance Rights Society that I belong to, right. uh, had 10,000 titles listed. I'm sure there are lots of duplicates in there, but, uh, ow, but ow. yeah, between theme, I mean, those, and certainly they're not all themes, but they're, you know, there, there were a million pieces of incidental music and promos and stuff, but yeah, I wrote a lot of music for sure. Yeah, I, yes. I, yes, you have. You've written, written a few things. Uh, do you remember the first one? I think it was a uh, a WrestleMania theme. For was it? That was it. That was the first one. Um, yeah, it was a five uh, a saxophone theme, and uh, of course, the, it, things were very different then. Whereas now, WrestleMania will have a very long, involved, cold, cold open, a, a big animated open, a special open uh, in no particular order. Uh, back then, it was pretty much. Uh, Hey, we're on, and I think it was a 20-second wild, high-energy saxophone piece and and throw to Vince in the ring. Is that kind of how they pitched it to you? Come up with something that's, uh, you know, you got 20 seconds, uh, we want it to be high-energy and a sax. <laughs> well, interestingly, the, uh, the, there was very little... Uh, Direction? Yeah, there's very little. <laughs> I know no one's ever heard that in WWE. <laughs> uh, there's uh, very little, r really relatively little conversation, and I, I think that's partly culture um, because I think there's an expectation that you will somehow deliver, no matter what your task is, and 
I think part of it was just a a, a very lucky uh, osmosis kind of using the force communication between uh, myself and Vince, where he would just say something, you know, a sentence about the guy, and I kind of okay, I get it, and so I'd do something, and and uh, I, I would say that most of the time I was on the right track, and occasionally he would say, boy, that's horrible, or, you know, that's not, not at all what this guy is. So. Well, somehow you made it uh, last for uh, 30 years, so you, you did something right. I want to, and we will get into all that, because uh, there's not many people that really uh, have been able to connect with Vince in that way uh, for an extended period of time over the years. Very few people have been able to do that, and obviously, whatever it was, you were able to. But, you know, Jim, I, I'm fascinated by your journey. And you, got, you began this conversation talking about, uh, you know, being five years old and, and being tortured on a piano and then, uh, you know, that leading to the suicide of your piano teacher. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you grew up in Pocahontas, Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas that's correct. Yeah. And, and uh, tell real. me how a, a young man, a, a young boy uh, gets interested in music and what it was like to grow up in Pocahontas. Pocahontas is, is uh, sort of the anti-metropolis. It's, uh, it's this beautiful, lazy town in northeastern Arkansas. And there are all these beautiful rivers that coincidentally flow through this one township. Uh, so I grew up floating those rivers with my grandfather and my father uh, and my brother and having a great time. But I also grew up with country music, always playing. And there was... Uh, one of my most moving early experiences with music was my cousin Becky taking me roller skating at uh, at a true, you know, this is right out of happy days. It wasn't California, so it yeah. wasn't really as glitzy, but it was, you know, it was the the entertainment for kids. You went to the roller rink and they just blasted music. And I I would rent the skates and everything, but... I was so taken just listening to the music that I was in a absolute different world. I, I would go there and I just float around and hang out and just take in the music. And um, at that time, it was really sort of, I guess, the end. Of, I was a really little kid. So it was sort of the very end of the almost the doo-wop period and going yeah. into early sort of AM pop. So who were those? Who were those early influences that you really, uh, you know, identified with when you're floating around that that uh, uh, skating rink? His name. I remember one song I just loved. I like the rain anyway. You know, just as a as an item of life. But uh, there was a song called Raindrops. Uh, really, sort of sappy song. Raindrops. Falling from my eyes, it must be raindrops falling from my eyes. And it, it's such a simple song, but it was just, in, I found it absolutely enchanting. And uh, I would just skate around and, and in my own world, people must have thought I was like, had a, some sort of problem. 
<laughs> clearly not engaged with any of the other kids at all. Mm -hmm. And were you playing music at the time? Had you picked up, uh, I mean, you said piano, uh, but were you actively playing? <laughs> no, the, the, the piano thing uh, was yet to come. <laughs> you, to, you were in therapy first, I imagine. Yeah, both short-lived and ended poorly. Yeah. So uh, after that, um, I wanted so much. I had asked uh, for a guitar for Christmas. And because of the... Uh, the piano incident, my father did not trust that I would follow through, so he didn't buy one, but he and uh, he but he rented one, and he didn't rent an electric, which is what I wanted. He rented an acoustic, so. Well, he probably uh, didn't want to see anyone else take their life either. So. <laughs> no, he well. was just trying to protect the neighborhood <laughs> at that point. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I, and it clearly, I think hindsight was one of those blessings in disguise because it was a pretty crappy guitar and. Uh, not set up really well. I didn't even know what set up well for a guitar meant, but it basically meant that you could play it without, uh, you know, being a bodybuilder. Uh, right. <laughs> and to press the strings down. But because of that, um, I, I think my fingers got stronger because it was such a horrible guitar. And now, now were you a small kid? Uh... I would say I was seven at that point. Okay. But I mean, stature-wise, you were were you just this uh, small stringy kid? Uh, stringy, yes. I don't think I, I don't think I was particularly small. But yeah. uh, I mean, you're, uh, I guess seven-year-olds are small. So yeah, I guess I was small. I was seven. Well, I'm saying, I'm and, saying and, you're, and you're playing this guitar, trying to play, and it's it's no, this... oh no, no, it was nothing like I was a a particularly small, slight boy or something. So okay. that's what made it hard to play. It was right. the fact that it was a horrible guitar. Okay. If I was 85, it would have been hard to play. Yeah. <laughs> if I had a, a woodworker's clamp, it would have been hard to play. Oh, so, uh, but it was, it was probably the right thing to do, and I stuck with it. I literally played until my classic, till my uh, fingers bled, and uh, and uh, the following Christmas, uh, mysteriously, Santa Claus showed up with an electric guitar. Uh, Which, by the way, was an equally crappy guitar, if not worse, <laughs> but it was electric. And, and amazingly, it was brand new. So I, I it was a Kent, sorry, I hope Kent is not still making guitars because they'll probably sue me. But yeah. if they are listening, it's like, wow, wait, if that's your new guitar, I want to steer clear of any used ones because... Yeah. The thing was unplayable. Yeah, let's let's but let's was, hope they got better, right? <clears throat> I uh, was it all self-taught? Did you were you uh, yes. get yes. instruction at the time? Or, no, no, I'm completely self-taught. I um, I got a chord book, you know, and and yes. sit there and you know, here's a G chord and then a D chord, and you you know, you first learn the really easy ones like E minor because it's only two strings to press. And, mm -hmm. Um, and you build on that. And then I, uh, and the, the Beatles sort of saved me in that I loved their music. And then I started figuring out, Hey, you can really accelerate the learning process by learning these songs. And so I just sit around as much as I could and learn to play. Um, I'd, I'd first learned the basic rhythm, John's rhythm part. And then I would learn George's lead guitar part. And then I would play 
uh, figure out Paul's bass part, even though I wasn't playing a bass guitar, but the bottom four strings on a guitar are the same as a bass guitar, just a octave higher. And, uh, and then later I did the same thing with drum parts. So it was like a great school to go to. Yeah. Was there a favorite uh, that you still remember? Favorite song or favorite Beatles? No, favorite Beatles that, you know, that really captured you. Like you said, I, I just imagine you breaking down these songs in your head. Uh, Early on, George, until I discovered that he was pretty much of a not, a, despite all the peace and love and meditation crap, that he was a pretty horrible, self-indulgent, selfish guy. Uh, and then as I improved and learned more about music i gravitated to paul just because he was such an obvious uh crazy genius of yeah. our time yeah and, and lennon as well i mean did you feel that way he was so uh this is interesting because i like writing dark songs but he, yeah. he was so dark and i also felt he was um he was crucial to that relationship i believe in that he but Paul, I'm sure, would have been um, way too light across the board with his material. And I think having John around uh, and giving him grief evidently all the time when he would write straight ahead love songs, Paul st started to get, you know, there were, they were love songs, but they had a nice little edge to them a lot of the time. I don't think that would have happened if John wasn't there. And I think John increasingly over the years grew more melodic uh with the melodies he wrote uh and uh, i think that never would have happened had paul not been there so i i think but but john what i think wasn't nearly as consistent as paul in his material john wrote some absolutely off the chart brilliant stuff uh but then you know not clunkers exactly but uh but stuff that was, I think, so personal that it was kind of tough to relate to as a listener. So you're you're, probably, you're talking here in the '60s, and I don't know uh, what age you are at this point. I mean, I can, I know I, I'm pretty guess pretty, but I just imagine like, uh, and why I find this, this so interesting when you talk about the Beatles, and I'm sure you do this with other music. Did you recognize a gift here that you were able to just listen to things and break it apart and then mimic it? That is a very interesting question that I've been asked before, so I've got an immediate answer <laughs> because I've had to think about it before. Yeah. Um, I think the interesting thing about uh, being blessed with gifts, and and I, I'm very sort of spiritual kind of guy, and so I definitely believe that it's a blessing to have gifts like that. Uh, that isn't just because I work real hard. Uh, all of us have gifts and our gifts are the things that come naturally and easily to us. So um, unless you're really just a conceited pig, uh, you know, how can you get too carried away? It's, the, it's this thing that you got lucky, you got the pick six on. And mm. um, so it was just always, I, I could just do it. So it was, you know, it's like, are you impressed that you can walk? Um, really? I mean, that's what you equated to. I mean, you could you at what age could you listen to something and then play oh, it back? Day one. Yeah. Day really? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could, even when I couldn't play the chords on guitar, I could play the note mm -hmm. and know like, okay, you know, this is an E note, that, that's an E chord. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, my, my skill set lagged the, the fundamental, um, I, don't, I don't even know if you'd call it understanding of music, but uh, some, yeah. sort of, some sort of weird instinctual thing. So, yeah, I can just hear a song and in two seconds I can, you know, I'll be playing along with it and can tell you what the chords are. And how old were you when you wrote some, wrote your first piece of, of music, a uh, first song or what? Oh, probably. Um, probably a, a teenager, I, I think, uh, in my own life and from stories and biographies I've read of other people. It's an interesting thing that that doesn't come with the curiously with the gift. It's almost like in all cases I've read, um, people seem to need a, a little bit of a door opening before they step through and realize it's like, oh, oh, you, you mean I, I could actually write my own stuff if I want. Yeah, but there's a lot of musicians who are who had tr have had tremendously successful careers who could not do that. Uh, Absolutely, I mean oh. a lot of them. I mean uh, you, you talk, many, you hear this many more ahead. can. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, you recognize that that it's just uh, you know like uh, you, you know you hear stories of uh, Jagger and Keith Richard who were basically locked in an apartment and their manager told you got to come up with songs and and. That's where they discovered it, but prior to that, they didn't really think about doing it. Uh, and then other artists giving, trying it, and realizing they're a complete disaster at it. Yeah, well, I mean, the same was what. Yeah, the, the Stones and the Beatles—they had the the same kind of thing. Is they, the Stones were just trying to be a blues band. They were just <laughs> to imitate uh, American and Southern black blues. And uh, the Beatles saw themselves just as a skiffle group, which was like a um, just means a kind of an English pop group, and they were, you know, they were trying to sound uh, like, uh, oh my God, uh, trying to think who's the early guy who was so popular and not Dwayne Eddy. Uh, hey, hey, hey da, 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 da. Uh, I can't think of his name, but I mean, incredibly popular guy who was killed in a plane, plane crash. Uh, Buddy Holly. Buddy Ali, yes. Yeah, okay. So they they felt like I don't get why people are getting so excited. We're we're actively trying to sound exactly like Buddy Holly or yeah. Bill Haley in the comments. You know, they were trying to absolutely imitate that sound, and uh, and then just suddenly they started to write their own stuff and 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 I I think it's as simple as it started to get such a response that it's like oh my god this is this is working so you have all these influences growing up and you're 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 mm -hmm. my age so I, I i remember all the music that uh, was going on then and and then mm -hmm. as we got older uh so uh who were these who were the which direction did you go in that music and then how did it develop I mean, what'd you do with it well i was lucky enough to have so many different influences all the way from records my dad would play uh, Burt Camford. Old stuff, yeah. Uh, Burt Camford, yeah, old stuff. I love Burt Camford's band because he had this big 
plunky bass. I've always wanted to ask Paul McCartney if if his parent, if his folks listen to Bert Camford, because there are some similarities to how Paul plays bass and and uh, it, it was a I mean a, for like a kind of big bandish thing the Camford deal it was a very distinctive bass sound very plucky and very present it wasn't in the background it was right up front uh, and then uh, had an older brother so he was a, a more sophisticated in me with his friends and listening to stuff um, and and back then, it, we were so fortunate in that radio, unlike now, sadly, kids, if you're listening, <laughs> fix this. Uh, <laughs> radio was great because you, like, the equivalent of Z100 now was um, you'd, you'd hear a Beatles song, then a... Uh, something a song from my fair lady on broadway yeah. uh, uh you'd hear uh, a sort of post kind of instrumental bandish kind of thing or a theme from a movie and that's what made up the top 20 and and that's what you heard you and and then you had uh the the incredible wonderful cavalcade of black music coming in from motown and listening this getting this exposure to the four tops um, and all those great groups. Oh my God. It was just a revelation because it, it was all these different, all these different styles and they came at music just uh, from a completely different standpoint. And uh, to be able to be exposed to all these different sounds by listening to one crappy little transistor radio on one station was mm -hmm. incredible. So were you performing at the time? I mean, in, uh, oh when you God. got into high school, oh, would you? Oh, Jesus. I, I, anything not to perform. Um, really? I, oh, the stage fright. <laughs> really? It's real. Oh, my God. I'm just so, I'm so uncomfortable uh, playing in front of people. The, uh, I was in bands in high school, but I was, I would literally... Uh, like turn towards the amplifiers and uh, and you know sort of always be maybe tinkering with something behind the amplifiers. So you didn't get over that. It wasn't well, you know because a lot of people they get up and yeah absolutely, but then it, they become part of it and it's uh, it, yep. it goes away. And that was not with you. That stayed with you. Oh, it's still active today. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I've I've read quite a bit about it because I've. I've tried on a couple of occasions to uh, get over it or, or, or figure out what the problem is and, and uh, address it. But I have also read that it's oddly uh, some sort of psychological thing that, that most people, uh, at very best, they can kind of learn to deal with it a little bit, but they never get over it. There, you know, there, there are a number of famous stage fright people out there that Carly Simon was a famous example. And she just didn't, you know, she didn't do a lot of touring. Yeah. Well, I know you did get on the stage a couple of times with the, uh, the well, WWF, the raw uh, band, you know, but uh, Sean, in, in a case like that, it's interesting. And the, and the extreme of that, the, maybe the time I was most comfortable was when I played with Chris Warren, uh, 
and a band we put together up at Boston Garden in a big paper, I think at WrestleMania, actually. And we yeah. played uh, Degeneration X. X theme, yeah. And an incredibly offensive uh, <laughs> anthem, uh, which hindsight I can't believe I did because pretty patriotic guy, and that was just extraordinarily bad taste. Yeah. Uh, but it was good heat, I guess. Yeah. But it's when you're so small and the crowd is so outrageously big, it's it, there's there's a separation I found that happened. It's like the proportion is so absurd here mm-hmm. that I'm invisible. I mean, so I, I was actually able to get into it. So. Yeah. But uh, but getting back to here, this uh, stage fright and uh, performer in your, uh, I guess, your high school years. But so what did you do with all this? When did it start to come together where uh, you started writing music? You started uh, composing? Uh, I started uh, really focusing when I had this. I, I bought a, a horrible, cheap little tape deck, but. Uh, a reel-to-reel tape deck, but but you could do what was called sound-on-sound recording with it, which would mm-hmm. be you recorded something on the left channel, and then as you played that back, you patched it into the right channel, but you also patched your guitar or, or microphone. <laughs> so now you were recording what you had recorded on the left channel and this new element to the right channel, and then you could now you'd take the right channel and do it again back and forth. Now, it's it's a weird process, and and particularly because tape, you get a lot of tape hiss. You have to plan ahead. Like uh, basically, you have to have you have to record the thing that you really want softest first, because as you go back and forth, that that first track is going to kind of recede back into the distance in the in the recording, and mm-hmm. so you do the other stuff first, and then try to do a vocal last or something, but. I was so enchanted with recording. It was just amazing. And then over uh, the ensuing years, I, I, I bought a better tape deck and then I got a four ta- track tape deck. And that, that really opened the doors where I truly had four tracks that I could then bounce to one track. And then I had three more tracks now. So it, was, it seemed like the floodgates were opening. Yeah. Uh, When were you able to make a living at this point in music when you started? uh, What were you doing in the meantime? No, not not till later did I, because I, um, I I had a a wonderful but very conservative dad who, uh, you know, tried to be understanding, but was, but trying to be protective too, saying like, hey, you know, a, a career in music. Is tough. That, you know, you're, you're talking lottery level stuff here. Yeah, um, exactly. And so, you know, you, you probably want to have something that, you know, is a steady, steady job path. And so at least you got a backup. So mine was going to be architecture. I was always into art and I love to build things. And so it just sort of, uh, it wasn't that I had some incredible passion for architecture, but it seemed more logical than anything else. Yeah. So I was on my way to go to uh, grad school to get a degree in architecture, 
And then I, like two days before I was supposed to go, I, I just said, no, I can't do this. I, mm. I've got to, I've got to make a run at music. And so dad was not happy about that. And uh, then thus began the, a very typical story of, well, I'll, you know, I'll work as a carpenter in, during the day and work on my music at night. But of course, by the time you get home at night, you're so wiped out. You just want to go out with your friends and have a beer. Um, and now yeah, but what was, what was your plan? I mean, you said, I, I'm going to, I'm going to write music and yeah, well, I didn't even know what type of music I would write. It was just, uh, just hanging on to this thread that I'll start and I'll find someone who needs some sort of music and I'll write that music. And probably the first things I write are going to be completely for free. And then I'll get paid $5 and then hopefully I'll get paid $10 and, um, so that went on for uh, a few, like two or three years. And, um, and I was really starting to simmer inside because I knew this, was, this plan was not working. And one day <laughs> I was uh, building a little addition for a lady and I literally had this epiphanal moment where I stopped hammering and I said, oh, damn, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and it was very embarrassing. I went to the lady and said, uh, you know, it's, wow, it's going to be a story that's way too weird to tell, but, um, and I'll, I'll get someone good to finish this project for you, but, uh, I, I can't, uh, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. And so I, uh, that night I said, when I get up in the morning, I am a musician. And then from there it was, I just called, contacted anyone I knew who was even vaguely in it. And, uh, and I, I just started, and uh, there was a friend of mine, Chuck Jepson, who started an animation studio, a very small studio, and I did a few things for him. And then I, through him, I got, uh, a, a, or through those projects, I got uh, some jobs at uh, Time. Uh, Is this still in Arkansas? Are you still in Arkansas? What's this going on? Oh, I'm up in Connecticut now. Oh, you had already moved? Yeah. Oh, Okay. And and but were you literally a starving artist? I mean, at this point, I don't know what yeah, kind of much. money you're making. I mean, yeah. you're right. No, no money. No, it was, you know, it's just, yeah, no, it, it was, it was. Uh, and why Connecticut of all places? Uh, no, my dad moved us up for work. Okay. He, okay. he got a job in New York. Yeah, I mean, close to New York City, but I guess, you know, the music yeah. business, you're supposed to be in L.A. Yeah, well, I can't do that. That's out. <laughs> Even then. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, or very early on, I knew that yeah. LA was not going to be a fit for me. City. Well, the truth is, cities are not really a, a fit for me. I don't. I'm not a city guy. Um, so, uh, so you're so, in Connecticut. This guy helps you out. What? When's the break come? Um, I guess where it, you know, got to be something you could really write down and and got people's attention enough to at least listen to what you've done or, or listen to your spiel. Uh, I got a couple of jobs at HBO um, and uh, doing some scores for uh, the not so great moments in sports and uh, which was a sort of series they had then and uh, did a lot of stuff for MTV and uh, all these new and growing cable stations. And at that time, all, all my life, uh, I've been a 
my favorite food is sushi. And at that time, there was only one sushi bar around and it was it only had like six seats. So it was like going to the ultimate local bar where you saw the same people right. virtually every time you went there. Yeah. Uh, and so I befriended this guy. Uh, I knew he worked for this WWE, WWF thing, and uh, I, I didn't know anything really about it. I didn't watch. And then one night he, he comes in and says, didn't you say you do music or something? And I say, yeah, lying. Um, and he said, so my boss uh, wants to do a video for the Nappy convention for the first time. And I can probably fake my way through putting a video together, but I have no clue how to do the music to it. And I said, oh, God, no problem. And <laughs> <laughs> so in case I quickly studied up on how do you do that and uh, <laughs> turned out, uh, Vince liked the music, I met him and, um, and he said, you know, he asked, what else do you do? And I said, I basically said, oh, I, you know, do whatever you need. And then from so there, this came about this connection starts because up. some guy who works with Vince at the time, um, and who, who was it? Do I mean, did, was, did he stick Brian, around? Uh, he was around for a while. Brian Penry. He was Vince's art director then. Okay. And, and, and he says, I'm going to put this video together. I need somebody that can put some music to it. I mean, are you doing like stock kind of music at this point, you know, with the uh, creating with electronic stuff and I mean, how are you creating this stuff? Uh, a combination of com computer stuff, which was very simplistic at the time, and uh, you know, I had a, a a very rudimentary studio. I had a crappy little set of drums and uh, a couple of guitars and a bass and uh, a little synth keyboard. Mm -hmm. so I could just enough to fake my way through it, and so I watched the video and. Basically, that was my first um, scoring thing. Yeah, you know, and I've talked to people, uh, you know, and I've mentioned this several times on the on the podcast that uh, a lot of people don't understand what the company looked like back then. I mean, you're talking '85, and this they had made this move uh, to Connecticut, and it was basically it was a pretty small staff. I mean, the way I got an audition, I was working in New York City, a guy who was working at the WWF at the time. Uh, in there, you know, was helping to send out these syndicated tapes, and he was one of the producers uh, doing that. And he, they saw something I did, and you know, it was like the, he called me up and said, "Hey, Vince saw something you did. Will you send me your tape, and I'll show it to him." You know, I mean, they, people look at it today, and it's this gigantic corporation. But you literally, it was a guy saying, "Hey, uh, hey, Vince, you ought to listen to this guy. I think he might be able to do it." And Vince liked it, right? I mean, that's kind of the way it was done back then. That's exactly the way it was done, and it was. Um he was uh, over uh, in this little little business building that was right next to the dump. Yeah. Uh, and he had one floor of it. And uh, at one floor, you know, makes it sound like really huge. Wasn't that yeah. huge. And he had one corner office and Linda had another corner office. And I don't know, you know, there just weren't that many people around. No, uh, no, there really wasn't. Uh, Brian was the art director. He had, he had probably the nicest office because he had all sorts of cool drawing tables and stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, Vince was he 
everything went through him. I mean, it was he was he was a guy who was running this company. Yeah. So, so you wrote this uh, first piece for uh, something for Natpe, that uh, right? Yeah. And he liked it. Uh, so, where did it go from there? I mean, what when did what did you start doing at that point? Did he keep bringing you back? Did he bring you on? Oh, I didn't become an employee for like, uh, in, I, I didn't become an employee until uh, they IPO and went public. So, yeah. But I mean, as far as working for him, I mean, but was it they called you? Uh, it was. The next time they needed something, I mean, when did it start to escalate where you were doing? It escalated uh, quickly. It escalated very quickly because Vince was on a mission to grow the company uh, rapidly, and and he had so much energy. He was, he was, uh, you know, any anything that seemed like a good idea, he was like, let's do that. You know, damn, let's do that, uh, and so. Just about anything I might suggest it would certainly be entertained. Yeah. So you said one of the first big, uh, I guess, assignments was uh, not the not the NatP uh, video, but I mean yeah. WrestleMania because that yeah. was a that was when uh, WrestleMania one was happening when you were brought in. Uh, did you yeah. see at the time? I mean, you know, it, prior to that, uh, with professional wrestling. You know, music certainly wasn't a a mainstay at at uh, selling their product. I mean, certainly they had music, but it wasn't what um, Vince did. A mainstay that makes it sound really important. I think yeah, uh, right. There was really, you know, almost no music. It was yeah. basically. I mean, you think about it now; it's hard to believe that that anyone came. It was basically uh, two guys come out. Uh, they jump in the ring. They mix it up for a while. They leave. Yeah. Next two guys come out, mix it up for a while. They leave. Uh, you know, it was a, a very simplistic business. And so uh, to start having, uh, you know, entrance themes, it just was like ramped up the energy extraordinarily. Now, was this uh, part of Vince's vision? Did he say, you know, I, I got, I want to start having, you know, uh, theme music for each of these guys, or was it a suggestion you made? How did that collaboration begin? I honestly don't remember. You know, oh. if it was purely, I, I certainly don't remember any global meeting of uh, uh, regarding. Okay, here's the new company policy. You know, if you are at this popularity and above, you get an entrance theme. Uh, you know, it just sort of uh, grew in a very organic way. You know, for instance, is uh, if you're a babyface, they got music. Heels tended not to get music, mm -hmm. or and later, heels got music, but you know, it was flushing toilets. Yeah. <laughs> to really, we want no confusion that you're the heel here. Uh, right. And then later. Uh, and I actually will take credit on this one, I think, because I, I believe I did suggest it. I, I actually it was a little bit of a crusade for a while. Is I was like, why did why do the heels have to have bad music? Why can't they have good music? I mean, we're aren't they the guys we love to hate? And if we put them over as heels more, yeah. won't we just love to hate them even more? Uh, so that's then that continued, and then uh, and then I, I do remember on Vince's side of the equation, 
he got to a point where he did make it a policy is like no more crappy music. You know, yeah. every, everybody gets good, good a good theme. So do you, what was the first, th- first thing? I mean, I, I assume you had been, had written songs be prior to this. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. What, what was your first uh, superstar that you, you put that together and tell me how you, how you do it, how you did it back then. How did it, uh, how did it start? Uh, I, honestly, I, I honestly don't remember the, the first theme I did. Um, it, it's, I, I guess it's always been, Sean, the same process. Is um, I, The first thing I generally look at is size. Are, are they uh, lighter and wiry and fast moving? Uh, you know, so you're in which case you're you're going to get a you know you know that kind of thing or are they uh you know a big plotting you know so the the music has to fundamentally express the the weight and the power of the person or not so much power because that in implies amount it's uh what is the source of their power yeah, is, is that it, how you basically started though you'd strum you'd say this guy's heavy i gotta you know and then just start you know picking or would it be yeah a oh, tune I, that would come in your head uh, uh sometimes I, I get a lot of good ideas in the shower uh, <laughs> uh you didn't take the electric in there i guess no, no, <laughs> no, uh, just no. <laughs> so, uh, so many ways you could go there. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I, um, yeah, it's it's just sort of uh, thinking about it, and it's um, you just it, it's like a faith issue. You just play until something comes, and a lot of times something comes in five seconds. And a lot of times nothing, you know, you'll be playing and go like, okay, you know, yeah, that says big guy, but it doesn't, doesn't feel like this big guy to me. Uh, And I always found if you just had the faith to sit there and keep playing that eventually, miraculously, something would come. All right. So breakdown, let's, let's one in particular. I mean, when, when the uh, Hulk Hogan. And uh, well, I didn't write Hulk's. Uh, that was uh, uh, you mean Real American? Real American yeah. was written by um, uh, uh, Rick Derringer and uh, uh, sorry, one other guy. I'm, I'm sorry, I've forgotten who. That was a, a great tune, and okay? Actually, well, but give but me not- one that the give what I want to give me a breakdown of how you did like warrior, boss man, one, okay. one that really stands out to you, and give me the science of how you how you did it. Great. I'll give you a warrior, but I want to give you one great trivia story first, just to okay. make sure everyone knows that uh, Real American was part of this album project we did at the time, and yeah. it was never meant to be uh, Hulk's theme. It was, I think, for a, a tag team, you guys. I think it was. I've totally forgotten what they were, but I, I think they they literally like had uniforms that were like American flags or something. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of them got injured or something, and and I think, as I recall, that that whole thing was kind of like an accident that sort of stumbled in, and boy, did it 
fit with him and it just and it just took off like the thing yeah. was absolutely written for so yeah Warrior. because it was on that album i thought you collaborated on that song uh no i i, I wrote a bunch of stuff on the album but not yeah. uh, but not that song no mm. okay so uh those guys yeah, uh, tell me one that really that stands out and then the thought process behind it and how it came together okay warrior was relatively easy uh, in the sense that it was, um, you know, I saw some tape of him coming to the ring. And he, you know, it, it's like, boom, he's there. It's, it's just, you know, so I, I felt immediately like there, there's, it's, it, it starts, it just, there's no like intro in particular. It's, we're, we're in. And, and I thought that just the thing that struck me is the guy's just, such high energy and frenetic so i it was like i, I think the first thing i played was just a you know just that it's like here he comes it was like oh my god here comes this this guy is and you know he's jumping and pulling on the ropes You know that one was a layup, basically. I mean, it worked, <laughs> it worked out well, and it's nice when it's a layup. But he he kind of wrote that one for me. Just one look at the guy. Is that a couple day process, or how long did it take you? Oh, that was a five minute process. Really? <laughs> I mean, and then then recording it probably yeah. took a day. Yeah, and you and you put this all the you don't bring in this uh, you know oh, no, band that, in and no, that's a I did it with a. Emu SP12 drum machine, mm -hmm. and which which was a really cool thing at the time, and uh, actually it's still a, a really popular drum machine used by a lot of hip hop guys still to this day, and um, and I it, it was uh, two guitar tracks, uh, and then a, and a bass guitar track, and a sort of organ synth track that's it okay now how about uh because uh, we won't go through every one of them but i loved i just love to hear the process here uh, uh like big boss man thing uh everybody loved the big boss man thing well which one day. i i wrote one and and jimmy hart wrote one and you're probably talking about the one that jimmy hart wrote. you know the, the uh, you know the da -da 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 yeah, right. Mississippi and something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yours is what? It it it, 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 it was on one of the hidden tracks. <laughs> no, it was used for quite a long time with him. Yeah. Um, I I've forgotten a little bit. I think it might have been because, uh, you know, Vince was has always been. Um, you know, there's good heat, that whole thing about our business. It's, um, there's good heat and then there's, then you can go too far. And I, I, I vaguely remember something about, you know, there was a concern that, uh, you, you don't want this crazy white classic cop from the South character, uh, going around kicking ass. And I think we just wanted to make him a big ass kisser, kicker versus, you know, this 
southern crazy guy. I, I could be remembering that wrong, but I vaguely remember something about that. But so mine was used for a while, and uh, to be honest, I, I think Jimmy's was much better because I don't even remember mine right now. <laughs> but you had to. How, did you collaborate on a lot a lot of these with Jimmy? Because uh, people nope. talk about all the time. Jimmy and I only collaborated on one song, and that was um, a song called Together, which was a love song for Randy and Elizabeth. Uh, really? Yeah. When you, then I realized I was the lucky one together. last forever and it was used for a video and it was Ooh, yeah it was yeah, exactly i can't but, imagine randy singing that but uh yeah <laughs> it was actually you know it was um it it was he was so bad that it ended up being incredibly touchy because it it felt so heartfelt yeah uh, because uh, you know i did kind of a really pretty music track behind it and the juxtaposition of that with their voices and and the, the the combination and kind of the irony of the difference between them uh made it really cool and 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 i always applauded randy for uh, kind of having the guts to step up and do that you know and because a lot of people in that circumstance just say like you know hey come on this is i can't sing this is yeah. this is just embarrassing and it worked out great and, now, and, what was that like, the working with a lot of these guys that, uh, you know, that you use their voices, uh, you know, Shawn Michaels and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, a bunch they, of others. What was like, that like with these guys? Uh, you know, it's for, the, the good news is for the most part, they know they can't sing. Right. So you find a way to make it work. You know, so, yeah. Uh, maybe one of the more interesting trivial story trivia stories about that was when I did the album um, Originals, where the whole thing was the, the talent singing the, a, a song, and I was working with Rikishi on a song that still to this day I just love, um, called "Put a Little Ass on It," yeah. and uh, and he could not sing. I mean. It's it's rare when someone, you know, not that many people have a great voice, but everyone can kind of stumble through and basically sing yeah. something. Uh, he can't sing. I mean, truly both pitch or rhythm. Uh, so I, I ended up having to get him in the studio. He couldn't sing along with a track. Yeah. And and boy, this is it, it, and he, he or anybody is listening in his family or something. I had a great time with him doing this and he was utterly cool with, with it. But I ended up getting headphones on me and just a tone that, that kept me in the ballpark of the pitch of the song and a click, just a down, down. Um, and I and then a microphone in, in front of him. And I was just, we're just the two of us alone in the studio and I'm facing him. He can't hear any music. And I said, just sing back to me what I sing to you. And I, we, I, we went through it line by line, sometimes half line by line. And, uh, and I would just be, don't worry, baby. And he would be, don't worry, baby. 
and I just don't worry, baby, and just keep doing till he got pretty, pretty close. And then I took the best selects out of everything, had to pitch and time correct, correct them all, and then put them piece by piece into the song and created the song. And, and it was really fun. Turned yeah. out great. Got a little piece, uh, put a little ass in it. Uh, oh my God. Uh, Still uh, remember? Put a little ass on it. Put a little ass on it. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's all I'm getting. <laughs> but what are your favorites, though? Huh? Uh, took a lot of work. I, 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 I to, to pick a favorite is is just impossible because it's. It's different at different times. I, there, there are things I just think of, um, just like, you know, hey, what's your favorite song to listen to in the car? It kind of depends on your mood at the time. Also, I have this, uh, along with what I was saying earlier about this weird, uh, you know, that, that gifts are just something you're fortunate enough to get. Um, and it's really not about you being cool and that that you are so great that you can do this um i also have this thing that happens that is complete release of stuff it's like after i've written it i if, if i hear it a week later it's like i'm listening to somebody else's music so i i just kind of let go of any um authorship of it and really? and but it's great because I can hear stuff. I mean, a lot of times I've been in an arena and a, a theme starts playing and I'm like a little bit threatened. It's like, wait a second, who wrote that? Mm. You know, who stands that? And then I'm like 30 seconds into the thing. It's like, oh, I did. <laughs> you know, and I, I finally realized it's something I did. Uh, it's a it's a very strange process, but I I absolutely believe that the gift is really you just get to be a conduit of this stuff coming through and um, and then once you've delivered it, you you move on. And I also so believe that because there have been so many times, Sean, that I've just sat down and played a song, um, you know, like it was finished. Mm. I mean, lyrics, chords. Uh, you know, played almost the final, really close to the final version of a song. Uh, just, just play it. I've never thought about it before, and it's it's really spooky, but it's also pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I was wondering. I mean, is, maybe that's a way because I wanted to know how you could keep how you kept it fresh when you're doing that much to make each one of these sound different. Because a lot of, you know, composers will kind of fall into a. They get onto something they like, and then you'll they'll repeat it over and over again, and different things before they finally, you know, get tired of it themselves. But you think that was a way that you were able to keep all these different themes fresh and step away from each one of them? I think maybe, but probably also the pressure of just um, wanting to. Um, I really have always felt a great, um, a great obligation in my job when I was with WWE to uh, that that I really was serving the talent that I really 
I really wanted my music to uh, help them succeed. Uh, and, and for me to do that, I knew I had to find something in them and, and that was kind of real and draw it out and, and somehow make it part of the music so that when they listened to it, there was something that felt real. Like with, with, with Austin's theme, uh, you know, he had been so frustrated with his career that part of the whole anger thing in him was real. He was so frustrated. He knew he, not, not in a really arrogant way, but he knew he had a real gift for this business and that he could do it if he could just get a shot and, mm -hmm. and uh, all this stuff, time he spent in the South, you know, he, he, he kind of got a shot, but never really what he wanted to be. And then when he finally made it to WWE as the ringmaster, that really wasn't what he wanted. It didn't resonate with him at all. Yeah. And then working with Chris Chambers and David Zahadi, which was always a treat because uh, they're such talented guys. Yeah. Um, the the uh, I, I, I just knew I needed something that sounded pissed off. It, it just that was the main goal. Is, is yeah. Now, did you have a conversation when you were starting to put this together with, with Steve? So he that he was you know part of this whole process and where you no. drew that that inspiration. No, no conversations with Steve. Um, I, because I, I think I might've gone to one of the shoots of those first promos that, um, Chambers did and, uh, David did, uh, up in the warehouse in Connecticut, the really dark things. And, uh, and, I, I, I remember trying to, that, that it needed to be something that was not melodic. You know, it wasn't it, it, melodic meaning um, there, there are chord progressions that are, they're, they're natural, they're smooth. You know, you go from an E to a... You know, there's, it's nice, it's pretty, it's calm, it's, it's not shaking Blows. anyone up, you know. Uh, yeah, flows. And I knew Steve needed something that was more, you know, you know, something screwy that's not, yeah. that doesn't flow. Yeah. So uh, the first thing was just going from an E to an F, uh, just a half step. Uh, I think I would just started doing something like that. And then quickly that just developed into... And then uh, behind that, I knew it was just had to be this driving drum beat thing, you know, that was just you know, relentless. It's like it doesn't matter what you do, this guy's going to continue to come out after you because he's so pissed off. Pissed off, and, yeah. and he is not pulling away. So it's just, you know. You know, it's just so uh, that that worked out well. And, yeah, yeah, but, I'll but, say it worked out but, really well. But yeah. more than anything, I, you know, I was I was most happy not with the composition, but that the composition served Steve, yeah. you know, and helped him become the star that he deserved to be. 
So with with the uh, you know uh, working with these guys, and you mentioned before you were not a wrestling fan. I don't know if you became one or not, but no, it never. seemed like yeah, it seemed like you had a completely different approach to this when you were working with talent. And uh, I think that some of the most creative people who are with the WWE um, are are the same way. Uh, it, they didn't. They're not uh, necessarily was the wrestling part of it. it's. It's entertainment, and they look at these at personalities. And uh, would you so, say that's how you were able to do that? I mean, in the way well, you looked I, at all these guys. I, I think I, I I view all music from a a film perspective that it's score to a film, mm-hmm. and so Steve's theme is like the score to it's it's. Uh, John Williams score to Jaws, that's the score to the, the da, 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 da. you know, that's that big uh, cellos and basses thing that, that that's the score to the shark mm-hmm. that, that is the shark. That's yeah. the, everything evil and dangerous that the shark represents. Steve's theme is everything dark and angry and relentless that, that Steve represents. So that's the score to him. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now, so, like, what would the what, like with the Undertaker uh, yeah. and the Bell? I mean, is that? Well, th- th- I mean, that was, uh, I, I guess, well, I, uh, certainly similar, but but different in the sense that um, I, that one did not come in five minutes because I I, I was just trapped with, okay, he's a, a he's a dead guy. I mean, I don't, you know, I didn't receive a lot of input other than kind of well he's you know he's this huge kind of dead guy and <laughs> and so I, I in thinking about that i was like well i mean like actively actually dead you know we're never going to see him or or well you know how does this work and then um in thinking about it and seeing a, a, just a little bit of footage about him there was this uh, that struck me there was this tragedy element to him, mm-hmm. this very sad, tragic element where it's like, what happened to this guy? You know, what, what, what made him this way? Why, you know, was was he injured? Was he beaten, tortured? I mean, you know, what, what, what made him so dark? And what him, what, what, what drew him so strongly to? death and the dark side and graveyards and and everything so i ended up going around the other way and finally writing um this uh the same melody but nothing like um here let me sorry give me one second and i'll show you um something it's amazing, though. It's amazing, uh, Jim, that had, someone had died. That, that's what I wanted. That I wanted to come up with a something that sounded tragic, like something horrible, and um, the, the, someone had had died. And uh, so I've I've almost got it here. Sorry. Well, but it's amazing to me that uh, how some of these come to you like boom you just know it, it works you're you're banging it out and then the other ones because 
Some of these get really deep. You're, you know, you're talking about how you're analyzing this Undertaker character. He's dead. Is he, is he risen? Is he, you know, what tragic uh, events, you know, you know, and it's, uh, it seems like when, when there are these complicated, uh, I mean, Steve Austin was pissed off. I mean, it was pretty understand, easy to understand his rage. But Undertaker, you're right. It was like this, who's this character? Yeah, uh, it, it was. But I have to say, I, I'm, I'm guilty of, uh, I'm, I'm fairly guilty of being quite intense. And so I took most of the things I write really seriously you know, of, of trying to, to get into the person's character, because I felt that I always felt like that's my job is, is I'm supposed to be writing a score to this guy. It's, it's not, um, it, it, and, and it's, it's a definitely a little bit of a complaint I have about where the business has gone, where I feel like the music has become, it's more of a commodity. It, it mm-hmm. seems like it has less to do with the character. It's it's not really selling the character. It's just something that coincidentally plays while somebody comes out. Right. It doesn't have the depth. Yeah, and there's. I think the the, the job of the music is is telling the subtext to the character, the backstory. So, all right. So I have this thing finally. So when I first wrote Undertaker, I, it was this gentle, almost childlike, sad thing way up high on a piano. Sorry. Kind of an exorcist type. After I had that, I knew, okay, that's the right direction. And then later I figured, okay, well, but it can't be a piano theme. So then I thought organ and then choir. And and then I wanted something as an opening to just sell darkness. And I thought just this big bell sound. It was and actually it was, gone, yeah. it was a, a mix of two different bells and two different big kind of uh, acoustic basses. Uh-huh. So... And so the first time you did that, you go, ah, that's it. When, when, yeah. or, or did you say, because that's all anybody had to hear. You're like, oh, no, uh, no, you no, know, no. and then uh, it, I don't know exactly if this is what you're asking, but when it's hard, excuse me, when it's hard, hard, not hard, when it just takes longer to, to get there, yeah. uh, I generally, it doesn't necessarily mean I have a greater sense of doubt of if it's right, you know, that one, uh, and, and it wasn't that long. It's just, we're not talking five minutes. It was over the course of, uh, you know, five hours. Yeah. But it seemed like there were, uh, more layers to this one as far as putting it together and, and, and finding the, what, what worked. Well, I think it was just, this one was less, uh, I wasn't sitting around playing for a long time. It was, uh, a lot of times when I'm trying to 
connect emotionally with a piece of music like that, I'll just take care of maintenance duties around the studio and <laughs> take care of wiring, but I'll be intensely thinking about yeah. what is the solution. And, and so once I finally got into this place of like, oh, it's, it's a, the, the, a lot of themes come from the perspective of the guy. I would say that uh, Austin's theme is the guy. It's, it's, it, the energy is coming out at us. Like, mm-hmm. you, like get out of the way, this guy is coming. Yeah. Uh, and other times, it's from the audience's perspective. And I think in case of Undertaker, that's it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's about our emotions while we're watching him. Yeah. How about some of the more fun ones? Uh, you know, the b- boy toy with, with the Michaels and, uh, uh, was that, were those an easy process, especially when you had a lot of people involved and, uh, you know, Sherry and, uh, Michaels you're, and man, you're, 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 it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad to hit, uh, Jimmy because he deserves all the mention he can get, but you're, you're being <laughs> incredible at hitting his themes. That's a, that's a heart. Really? Uh, I now, thought- uh, no, and, and they, he, they recorded that with Sean, and and he, uh, down in the studio down south, and they got Sean in there and convinced him, like, you sing it. And um, as a matter of fact, I think the very first version was with Sean and Sherry, I think. Well, what were some of the more fun ones you did that, 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 uh, that stand out, that you uh, really had a good time doing and, and, and working with the guys? Uh, well, it was fun doing, uh, the game because I got to work with Motorhead and, um, right. Getting to know Lemmy a bit and, uh, and those guys, um, uh, got more fun ones. Jeez. Um, um, it was, uh, it was really fun working with perfect road dog on, um, on uh, with my baby tonight because that was a actually that's a but that is not a WWE song it's a song of mine that I wrote for my wife mm-hmm. and really played in a rare concert uh, with relative to the stage fright thing at one time tw- twice I did this uh, these sort of local concerts with uh, put together a band and just decided to go out and play and try it this was mm-hmm. when I was trying to kick the stage fright thing. So uh, that was one of those songs I wrote for that concert. So, but but Vince called me in one day and said, which was uh, so shocking because it's fairly well known that, uh, well, I I'd never really known uh, the, the 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 kind of the, the the vibe on the street is Vince hates country music. That's always been the way that what I've heard. Vince hates yeah. country music, and so I don't really know if that's true. Or did he just decide he he wanted to break the association of pro wrestling in the South? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. But in any case, he, it was surprising uh, because a couple of times over the years, I had suggested country things relative to go, earlier in this interview, t- talking about Coconus and growing up with country music. I yeah. love it. Um, he calls me in and says, so I need a country song. And I like, uh, okay. And then he basically 
outlines the Jeff Jarrett road dog thing. And, um, and I said, I, I don't know if it'll be appropriate because it's really a kind of a love song. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a love song. And, but, uh, this thing I wrote for my wife, you can, I'll play it for you. you it's a country song. It's recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, and he heard it and he said, great, let's do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> that was it, and it saved me having to come up with another song. So that was, mm-hmm. that was a good thing. Yeah, and now you mentioned Vitch. Uh, tell us how that that relationship evolved over the years. How it worked as the company got bigger and bigger, and uh, how did that all uh, work during those years? Well, early on, he and I spent a lot of time together. I I was out on the road, uh, and and fortunately that stopped so I could really just concentrate on being in the studio. It was actually necessary. It had to stop because the demands and the needs for music in the company were growing so rapidly uh, that I was working seven days a week to keep up with stuff. And, um, but early on, it really was, uh, it was a very direct relationship where he would, tell me about new stuff coming up that was needed and, um, you know, real simple. And uh, slowly over time, Kevin Dunn became a little bit of a a go-between between us, as well as having uh, his own contributions. He had uh, often had very, very good instincts about music. And um, so... And then as the company grew, uh, sadly, that got more and more distant because he just got swept away into, well, we all got swept away. As, yeah. as everything became more important. Um, yeah. And uh, so, uh, and then as, towards the, 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 the last years I was there, uh, you know, communication just really kind of fell apart. And I think that's what um, really got us on a bad road. Yeah. So, did no. you always work out of your house? Did Or did you have a studio at the, oh, uh, at the facility? No. Well, early on, I had a studio in the bunker of a church in a all <laughs> cement room, like two stories underground. Oh, great for acoustics. <laughs> Yo, it was really, it was, it, you know, Interesting that you mentioned that. If you were searching the world for the worst place to have a studio, this is <laughs> like we found it, guys. We got yeah. it. Uh, home run. Uh, so, but at, at the at that point, I, you know, uh, it was it was the best I could do or afford. So uh, then uh, later we uh, built two different studios that I was in at the production facility in Stanford, WWE production facility. The second one being just a, a world-class, beautiful studio designed by Russ Berger. And, uh, and then about three years ago, I uh, built this beautiful home studio where I am right now, and which is a dream come true and something I've wanted to do for, I don't know, 30 years. And finally did it, and that's where I've been working for about the past three years. 
Wow, it's and it's amazing how God you think about all the different things you've been involved in, and you 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 said it, it's like uh, you looked at all of these like a score, uh, but you did score some movies. Um, yeah. Was your was one of your first was No Holds Barred because I I remember when that came out <laughs> way oh, back when. What a I, you know absolute nightmare because uh, Vince let me score it to his credit and yeah. um, and at the end of the day I. I came through, but boy, along the way, uh, you know, there was a lot to learn about scoring a film that I didn't know. And that was, that was your first time? Uh, not the first time scoring something, but... But, but I mean a film, yeah, like a full-length... Yeah, a, a full-length film and the amount of music and the, the things that change along the way as, as, the, as scenes change, edits change, and like the last four days, five days of the edits... Uh, I was, I set up a little studio in the same building as the soundstage where the movie was being mixed. And I was, uh, I slept for one hour a night uh, over the, I think it was five days and uh, basically uh, rewrote the entire film uh, in in that time. And uh, so it was, it was weird, but then fast forward to uh, these, other films, uh, legendary and stuff. I mean, that was just a uh, a wonderful, magical thing. Uh, recording these beautiful orchestral scores uh, over at Abbey Road Studios, going full circle with my my friends, the Beatles, and uh, not my friends, the Beatles. My yeah, my, your early influences. Yeah, influences. Thank you. Yeah. Didn't want it. Have someone Although, say, you know, I don't know if maybe you'd become closer to Paul over the years, but uh, I actually uh, here's okay. Give me a quick tangent side story. So um, we do here. My <laughs> wife and I, <laughs> right, tangents are good. My wife and I were down on vacation in the Caribbean, and um, I love to fly fish. So there's this place down at the end of this uh, beautiful place we went for dinner that had a big cement abutment that went right up to the rocks on the water and they had lights down there. Um, it wasn't like a patio, it was like a, just, it's just kind of the end of the building. It's not really a place for guests to go, but you can go down there, it was a great place to fish. And I, I walked down because I like to see the tarpon come in at night because they like the lights. They just hang there in the lights. So there was a guy fly fishing there and there's a sort of silent rule of fly fishing that you help fellow fly fishermen out and Mm -hmm. this guy was pretty good but not excellent and and i had been fishing there the night before so i said hey if you get down on that rock right over there you get a much better angle of uh, at the fish and and i'll go over here and spot so i see he's going there and one of the things in fly fishing that is a cardinal rule is you must be a, a aware of who's behind you because for those who know fly fish this thing is swooping back and forth and i'm behind him and and, uh, suddenly he completely changes direction and i see this gigantic fly i mean tarpon flies are huge they're Mm -hmm. not trout fly um it's like a lure and here it comes and there's that life you know (laughs) seen before your eyes and how time slows down in some bizarre spider-man film yeah and it's like, oh my God, that fly is going to—it's <laughs> going to hook you. It's <laughs> coming right for me, yeah. and it—it took—you it, know—it was such a bizarre thing because it—it it took forever to get there. 
and landed dead center in my back, sort of, in, you know, centimeter from my spine bone. Uh, even better because he panics and sort of pulls on the, the fly. So fast forward, we go inside the manager's office and the manager is just freaking out. This is a really beautiful, not, this is not where we were staying, but we're having dinner there. Yeah. Beautiful high-end resort. So this guy sees my back, blood dripping down and thinks like, oh my God, lawsuit. I'm so <laughs> rude. Uh, and, and the guy who's the fisherman, a really nice guy, he follows me up and it's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, so sorry. We're down there with uh, our son and then his fiance, and uh, we're waiting around for the doctor to get there. And I'm in sort of like half shock zone. And suddenly Natalie says, I, I'm not sure, but I think Paul McCartney just walked by us. <laughs> and, and I'm like, no, no you know, that's, oh, that's well, just too weird. You're the one who's hallucinating. <laughs> so being smart and beautiful, she went over. And she sweet-talked him to come over. And so I'm standing there off to the side next to the manager's office. And across the floor, here comes Paul McCartney. Wow. You know, with Natalie. And he comes over. Couldn't have been a cooler guy. We chatted for a while. And he said, okay, I, I, you know, I don't know if this is a story, what she said, but I got to see it. So he walks around behind, lifts up my shirt. And he was joking around about it. He goes, oh, my God, that's bad. <laughs> that's really bad. <laughs> It's like, thanks. Ooh. Appreciate that. Yeah. But he was uh, completely cool, utterly unassuming and uh, normal. And uh, he hung around and we chatted for a while. And it was uh, a, just a great experience that took a lot of the pain out of it. Oh, man, that's that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people want to, you know, I got a lot of questions. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I get a few in. But uh, a lot of people asked about how... You said you weren't really an employee of the company, so were you well, paid per project? And what happened with as far as the rights go? Did you share them? Do you have a piece of all of that? Uh, as in in uh, the most common uh, deal is generally a writer keeps. There are two portions to the ownership of a song. Mm -hmm. uh, there is the writer's portion. The, the person or persons who composed it and then there is the people who publish and or publishers mm -hmm. uh, in in my case uh, WWE is the publisher and they retain all the publishing rights and I retain my my writer's share and I receive royalties on that writer's share they receive royalties on the publisher's share that in theory is truly a 50-50 split. However, the way that the um, music world has evolved, music business has evolved, is that the real power is in the publishing. So, uh, you know, uh, NASCAR could approach us and say, hey, we want to use Stone Cold's uh, theme for, uh, you know, the theme to mass NASCAR. Mm -hmm. We want to pay you $100,000. Mm -hmm. uh, I could think, wow, that's a great idea, and it means I'm going to make 50 grand. But for some reason, for whatever reason, Vince could say, you know, I just don't think it's a good idea to have our product mingled with NASCAR. You know, there's something about it that's too close. And it ha he is the publisher, even though it's 50-50, theoretically, in ownership. Uh, if, if the publisher says no, 
it doesn't matter that I say yes. And vice right. versa, he wanted to do it, and I, and I, you know, had a horrible event with NASCAR or something, and I was adamant, no, we can't let them use this music. Uh, they'd go ahead and approve it anyway. So, but but as far as sharing the profits from that, you say is it is it fifty fifty? I mean, you got you got half of all that. It it is half of the what's called the performance royalty when mm-hmm. some uh, material plays on television. In other aspects, it's not fifty fifty at all. Like uh, on iTunes sales, um, I get just what's called a mechanical royalty on sales, which is like three and a half cents, I think, and they get the artist thing, which is more like 70 cents. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very skewed yeah. to the publisher. But that's great. You still get a lot of mailbox money, as they yeah. say. There you go. And that yeah. shows up. So, uh, you know, along that the journey, um, when did it start to change there? Because... Uh, Man, I mean, you, you just had this incredible run. Um, when did things start to change? I guess uh, three, three, three or so years ago, three to four years ago, um, a, a, a lot of politics involved, uh, uh, personal stuff uh, uh, that that I don't want to go into. Right. Um, but um, over the years, I've, uh, I've had a, a failing in myself, um, which I'll keep doing because I guess in my heart, I don't think it's a failing, but it's not a good trait for business. Uh, I'm a bit Pollyannish in um, that I tend to, uh, trust people until unfortunately I've been shown that I shouldn't be trusting them. Mm-hmm. And, um, so there were people that I really thought were friends that, uh, turned out not to be friends. Yeah. So, but, but you think, I, you think about the, the, the decades, I mean, uh, and if people know this company and if you've just seen, uh, how it's, it's worked over the years, there are very few people that have, uh, First of all, I've been able to work with Vince that closely, and that takes a very unique individual to do that. Uh, you've been able to do it all uh, all those years. You were able to do that all those years, mm-hmm. and um, you know also to have been able to contribute creatively for that long uh, is incredible. I mean, do you look back and you you you, uh, you mentioned to me that you know the BMI catalog has at somewhere you know 10,000 and there may be some uh, repetition there or or you know other ones that cross over but i mean on a small scale to even think it was a thousand you know uh, original yeah pieces that you've done is just, is just, does it do you ever think about it uh, how much too, work that was I, not too much i i'm i'm not um I don't tend to be too impressed with myself because uh, this, uh, really it's, it's, it just, it, it's a combination of it's what I do. Uh, it's, a, it's what I've always done. Um, I, I, I think I, um, thrive on the, the tension. I think composing there's, there's great tension in composing and there has to be, there has to be, um, I think, for any good art to happen 
on any level, there has to be tension. Um, and uh, well, or how does that how is that different from pressure? <laughs> from uh, well, um, delivery. Well, um, a lot of times, it, you're right. It, a lot of times, it's it's just straight pressure, and it's mm. you know, my God, I I have four pieces of music to finish, and I have. 16 hours to do it in so you know it, there are many times i've been in situation where okay you know basically you've got four hours to write and record each piece um and you know that that at least one of them it's not going to work out like that so uh i guess the difference sean is that it's um pressure is a bad thing tensions tension's a good thing tension is is about uh, emotion and 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 caring and that you you want to deliver and um, if if there is no tension creativity gets much harder it's a, it's it's a very interesting dynamic it, it's yeah, it's that edge yeah it's you, and you and if if um, I I've, I've just been fortunate in I don't know if it's because I take it so seriously or take it so personally or or if it's such a, an emotional thing for me that that writing music is just that way but it's it's still to this day I'll give you uh, I was just thinking this uh, um, I have this this uh, program on my iPhone that has saved my life the last few years since iPhones have been around mm -hmm. it's just a simple little recording app where I can grab the ideas and so I'll have a new song idea and I'll quickly jot it down, you know, no matter how rough, right. you know, if you can hear this. And that's off the phone, something that just came yeah. in your head. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned that how you can look back, you know, you, uh, uh, you can let these things go. It's like uh, you finish a piece and then it's behind you. But was there ever a theme or something you did that you, you said, ah, I'd like to, I wish I would have changed that uh, if I had the chance to go back and do it over or did they stand alone? Did you never really have that, that thought uh, for some of these? I think I never had that thought only because it just wasn't possible to have that thought because things, <laughs> there was always yeah. the next thing to work on, but, but no, I would, I would tinker with stuff forever probably, you know, so it's good that there are deadlines and that you have to let it go. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the hardest things, at least for me to do. And I've heard for a lot of other composers, it's, it's hard to let stuff go and say like, okay, that's done. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, cause you always think, Hey, I can, you know, it can be mixed better or I, I could get a better guitar sound or, uh, you know, I, that, that, that B section, I think, uh, you know, the melody could be stronger or the lyric could be stronger here. Um, so actually, uh, j that, that that's another thing that I'll, I'll take the pressure off of you, a question that, that that I think is something that hasn't been asked much, which is about the lyrics um, I write and, and something I'm proud of because I, over the years I've received, uh, people would send me songs or bands or a label or something and say like, Oh my God! You know, listen to this song would be the perfect, perfect entrance theme for Joe Blow, or just the perfect entrance theme for someone. 
And more often than not, and I mean way more often, oh, yeah. the lyrics are, uh, you know, are, they're just dumb. You know, yeah. they're, they're obvious, they're trite, they're, um, I'm going to... I'm gonna hit you upside the head until it hurts. Yeah, I'm gonna pound your ass. I'm gonna pound your ass. Pound your ass. Pound your ass. Pound your ass. And uh, no, I that just has never worked for me. And I work really hard on um, the the lyrics I've written over the years to have them not be about wrestling. I mean, if you go back and look at them, they're very rarely are they anything direct. They're almost always uh, um, Randy Orton. I hear voices. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. that was, you know, Randy's a kind of mysterious guy in, in some ways, very simple and straightforward guy, but he kind of doesn't give a lot away. He, he seems pretty straightforward in how he sees business and what it is to be. Um, you know, a superstar. And that made it hard to really write a theme for him. And so finally I got to the point uh, of realizing I'm, I've got to take what I see and hopefully what I think most fans see and tell a story of Randy that we didn't know. And that the reason he's so kind of quiet and relatively tight-lipped and just really walk softly, carry a big stick, stick cool guy is because he's got all this crap happening inside his head and uh, that he hears voices. And uh, it has, you know, if you just look at the, at the lyrics, it's, it's a pretty mysterious, dark song and certainly has nothing to do with wrestling. Yeah. But, so what was harder for you? Uh, was it was it the lyrics or music? Oh, it, uh, it there it it all 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 about the same you know the same deal. Really, it wasn't. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes the music comes instantly and the lyrics don't, and and sometimes I have the lyric before I've got the song. Right. So uh, how did this all wrap up, Jim? And, and I know you don't want to go into personal details with this or what the deal was, but was there a point, did you have a conversation with Vince uh, when, uh, because this is, this is pretty recent and, um, yeah. and you, and, and it's pretty much what you've known your whole career. Uh, yeah. So how did it end? Uh, had a brief conversation with Vince and uh, it was over and uh you know, all I'll say is that uh, I I think there were a lot of ways to end it, and the way that it ended was uh, uh, I, I think there were better ways to end it, where everyone could have walked away and uh, with a, a much better feeling. Mm. And after 32 years, it it just uh, seems like a lost opt- opportunity to me, and yeah. I, I'll. I, I don't really understand it, but hey, it's uh, you know it, it was a extraordinary run. Uh, the I think the reality is that uh, it was um, I've got a lot of other music I'm dying to write, and so I'm <clears throat> uh, going to go off and write that now and see what happens, and uh, uh, go out and see who I can write for, 
and I'm going to try to, uh, um, hey, anybody who is looking for music, call Jim. He's ready to go. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you, you, you kind of touched on that, but uh, what's next? I mean, what, what do you want to do? What, I mean, you've I really certainly got an incredible resume. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, one of the problems is I really want to do so many different things. I've got such a backlog of songs uh, that I want to try to get out there. I've got a bunch of um, great country songs. I'd like to get to people who are looking, who, you know, who are what you mentioned earlier in this are, are great performers, um, unlike me, but they don't write. So they need to get songs from people. So I, I need to try to get to people like that and uh, get some of these songs out there. And also I've got a bunch of orchestral stuff and uh, movie scoring, which is, I guess, my real uh, true emotional love, the thing that moves me the most. So um, I'm going to be trying to uh, get stuff out and, and make some connections in that road. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because, as you mentioned just a minute ago, this has been what I've been doing. And a combination of there's never a credit role in um, WWE programming. Right. So while certainly fans who have been incredibly kind um, uh, know me well, they're not the people who are hiring to write music for TV shows and films. Huh. And, and I'm sort of lesser known there. And while I have a nice resume, it still is something that I'm kind of starting from building a new business, really, um, because most people, they kind of know of me once I educate them who I am. It's like, oh, you're yeah. that. You're, you're still that guy on stage, Jim, that's uh, yeah. got his back turned and looking at the, the speakers yeah. all those years later. Because so you certainly came across a lot of uh, a lot of contacts along the way, but uh, you were definitely actually, low key. Actually, surprisingly, not not that much, you know. Because at the end of the day, most of the time I was in my studio writing away, yeah. uh, and you know, not out making other connections. So, uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, God willing, it'll go tremendously well because I'm I. Uh, you know, the, the iPhone app I was telling you about, I, 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 I clean it off and download all the ideas into a master file I have, uh, you know, at least once a month. But so far this month, I'm up to 125 ideas. So, so are, you, are, you, are you excited? I know it's uh, kind of scary, like you said, because this is what you've known. But are you uh, You're right. excited um, about a new challenge? Uh, because um, Well, um you know, uh, change was uh, presented to me in this case, and change is not something that human beings deal with particularly well. It's yeah. always scary because it represents the unknown, and I'm no different in that regard. But uh, am I excited? Yeah, I'm incredibly excited, um, and uh, I'm. I mean, looking back, yeah, I wouldn't imagine you have to worry about it uh, financially, but uh, you're a creative person, and I can't imagine you sitting in your studio just no. listening to tunes on your uh, iPhone, you know, and no. coming up. Yeah. No, I'm not going to be just hanging out watching, yeah. the, well, you know, old movies. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what I, what I know I contributed to the success of WWE. And um, they, 
you know, no one can take that away from me. And so I'll keep that, that vibe rolling. And uh, one other thing I wanted to do is, um, earlier you asked me, you know, to what degree I worked with talent. Yeah. And it surprisingly little. And, uh, and that's surprising because a lot of it is so personal. A lot of that music yeah, was created I, I, for them. And I don't know if that's good or bad. No. Uh, the, the whole notion of being a, a superstar talent in WWE, I, I think it, it necessarily means you've got to have a pretty big ego and, and self-focus to make it work. I, I think that's just a requisite for the job. But I just wanted to give a shout out to a couple of people who have always been incredibly gracious to me and grateful and kind and polite and because uh, I rarely get a chance to see them anymore, just in the outside chance they might listen to this. Yeah. But Steve Austin, uh, just a terrific guy, and I thank him for uh, all his kindnesses to me. Uh, Chris Jericho, just a home run guy, always incredibly kind. And, and very uh, much into music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, Mark Undertaker, uh, just uh, an incredibly sweet man. Uh, has always been incredibly kind and gracious, and uh, and I'm so appreciative for that. It really means a lot to me. Well, I know they appreciate that music because it uh, certainly helped propel their character. I know you work with Chris Chambers quite a bit, and um, yeah. you know he's a he's a close friend of mine as well. Uh, but I don't, you know, and he's another one of those guys behind the scenes that's incredibly creative, and I've I've known him for a long time. We actually started working in television together. Um, but there are a lot of people like Chris, you know, that, uh, but Chris is really one of the, uh, unsung guys, I think with that, that company with I all of the things that he's done. I'll go much further than that. I think he is the poster child for unsung heroes of WWE. He's, um, this is one gripe that I will share about the company because that's, you know, it has nothing to do with the last few years. It's has to do with the last decades is Chris is the most creative storyteller, story writer, creative mm -hmm. I, I've ever known. And why he's not, I don't care if they have a staff of 500 writers, uh, he could come up with 20 better storylines in yeah. an afternoon than all 500 writers. It's it just, it's not, a, it's not criticism of the 500 writers. It's, it's just stating the obvious that Chris is so gifted and that he's that he's not writing storylines is is just uh, it's just such a lost opportunity. I, I just it's something I'll never understand. He's yeah. just he's uh, he's a really good guy and he's incredibly gifted and he should be uh, he should be right in the mix. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'm really excited to uh, see what, what's next for you because, uh, you hey, know, me too, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, I don't, I don't know what's ahead for you. I know it's going to be great, uh, whatever you decide to do, but, uh, on behalf of everybody listening and, uh, you know, really, I want to thank you for, uh, you created the sound of the WWF, the WWE, and it's something that lives on forever. And, and people hear this stuff, uh, they go back, and now with the network that they have, and they can go back and hear all this. Uh, really, uh, you you uh, helped create that, and I and I hope that uh, you're an incredibly humble person. But 
I hope one day you realize that and really, and thank you. And thank you for coming on primetime. It's been awesome. Oh my God. I, I, I'm just flattered that you would take this amount of time. And I want to thank all the people who submitted questions and care enough to submit a question. Uh, it's a really cool and uh, touching thing. And as I transition through this period, it, this is a, a great burst of uh, loving confidence I've been sent. And I'm really grateful. Yeah. How can people get in touch with you? Um, you know, I don't know if you've got an email or something they can reach you on Facebook. How can people get in touch with you? And, and um, other people who need great music. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm very soon going to be. Uh, I've got a website in development now. I've only been meaning to do that for about twenty years. So, um, so now it's funny. Uh, being out, I'm, I'm dealing with all this stuff, like, you know, getting business cards, finding a, a, a personal publisher, uh, getting a website, things I've literally been talking about for 10 or 20 years and and have not had time to do, but now I'm going to do. So that's good. That'll be jimjohnston.com. That should be coming soon. And uh, the email associated with that is jim at jimjohnston.com. Pretty easy. Yeah. All right, Jim. Thank you so much. The man who Sean. created all those things, folks, and beyond. Sean, Jim thanks. Johnston. Really appreciate it. You you take care of yourself. All right, you too. Thanks, man. Wow. Uh that was that was uh an incredible journey there with Jim Johnston. Uh really, the man behind the curtain and the amazing composer of so many of the greatest things ever in the history of professional wrestling. What an incredible artist. And I tell you, I don't think we have heard the last of Jim Johnston. Uh, what an incredible guy. I remember, uh, you know, back in the day, he hadn't been there very long when I arrived in the WWF, uh, WWE. And uh, he just uh, continued to evolve. Uh, and you could hear when he was talking about it how, uh, you know, he was certainly a gifted composer, uh, musician, but he came from an outside world to him. It's always been about entertainment. And I think, I really think that's why he was able to create such great music for the uh, WWF, WWE. And as I said, we haven't heard the last of Jim Johnson. I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, love to get your feedback on the podcast with Jim. Hit me up on Twitter, at Sean Mooney Who, uh, or also at, at PrimetimeMLW, or email me at primetime at mlw.com. That's primetime at mlw.com. As always, a big shout-out to our great sponsor, SeatGeek. If you need seats to any live events, SeatGeek is definitely the place to go. Just download the app onto your mobile device. And remember, because you're one of my listeners, you're going to get $20 off your first purchase by using the promo code PRIMETIME. That's PRIMETIME. Great podcast on the way this Wednesday, dropping at 7 a.m. EST, Eastern Standard Time. The great Tito Santana. That's right. Tito Santana joins us here on Primetime. Uh, he is not just a tremendous talent in the ring, uh, who actually still steps into the squared circle now and then. He is also a great person. Do not miss Tito Santana right here next time. And that's going to do it for this episode of Primetime. I'm Sean Mooney. And I'm out. Thanks for listening. The world of NLW Radio never stops. Over 460 million people around the world have disabling hearing loss. 
Starkey Hearing Foundation provides hearing aids and hearing-related healthcare to millions of patients in over 100 countries. But they need your support to continue helping those in need. Give the gift of hearing by donating to the Listen In campaign. Go to listenincampaign.org to donate today. That's L-I-S-T-E-N-I-N-C-A-M-P-A-I-G-N dot O-R-G.